So we're continuing with Galatians. We're going to get into chapter 2 today. Uh, we're going to plan is to do chapter 2 today and Wednesday, and then we're going to go on to chapter 3. So last time we talked about chapter 1, and one thing in chapter 1 is Paul just opens up with the defense of his own work. And it's, it starts sharp and fast. Right? He skips the Thanksgiving part. There's no time for niceties. And as Mitch pointed out, it, it also does the same thing on the outro and the conclusion. It just pretty much just ends like, peace out, we're done. It <laughs> just moves on. That's how the whole letter is. And Paul talks about how, it gives you a little bit of a hint of what his opponents are saying. They're questioning his authority and they're questioning his motives. Right? Because he says in there, like, do I, do I look like a person who's trying to make people happy? Like Nina pointed out. It's like, nope, no, Paul. You don't look like trying to make friends. Okay, that's definitely not the case here. So this ought to be a hint that his heart's in the right place, but he's not trying to do it just for impure motives. And he even says in there, if I were trying to make friends, I'm paraphrasing here, I would not be a would not be a follower of Jesus, right? This is this is the opposite. So, and when you looked into some of the past of Paul, which shows that his motives had to have been pure. And even people who were skeptics will say that, well, no, Paul, skeptical New Testament scholars, not just some rando on Reddit, but an actual person who studied this stuff, will tell you, Paul had to be either deceived or he had to be something. One of these other things, he couldn't just be making it up. It doesn't make any sense. So, anything on chapter one y'all wanted to mention? All right. I do have books on order, so I have more books coming. I ordered 20 more, and I'm questioning whether I ordered enough. We'll, we'll see. I can put in a third order, I guess. Uh, they'll probably be here this week, I think. All right. Daniel, would you kick us off with a prayer? God, we thank you for this, this book that you preserved for us to the, to the Galatians. Um, we ask that you would open our hearts so that we can learn more about uh, what, what purpose the law has for us and uh, what freedom in Christ means. Please, please help us all to learn through, through this class. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. There's a freed slave named Frederick Douglass. And he, he wrote his biography. He actually wrote three biographies. He kept rewriting his same biography because he kept saying he kept coming to different conclusions on some of the stuff and give more analysis. But kind of an unusual guy. So he tells a story. But he goes to this congregation, and this congregation had both black and white members. And he went to this congregation because he had intended to place membership there. And he had heard that this was one that actually allowed black members in. So he goes to this congregation, and then he's told, well, we can't give you a seat. And he said, it's not because we harbor anything against you. It's that, well, there's some unconverted in our congregation, and so if you just don't mind standing. So he's, he, he's like, oh, I'm okay. I'll, he just kind of goes along with it. The preacher preaches a sermon, and he says the sermon was right on. He didn't see any problems in the sermon. Then it comes to the Lord's Supper. He said that the preacher had all the white members come and take the Lord's Supper. 
And then he, the preacher raised his voice to an unnatural pitch and looking to the corner where the black sheep seemed penned, beckoned his hand, exclaiming, come forward. And Douglas was incensed. And so he just left. And he said, you know, I went out. I said, never having been in that church, I said, I honestly meant to go there to become a part of that body. And if you keep reading his book, he talks about other places in which the Lord's Supper was polarizing because of this. He tells at one point where there's, there was a Sunday service where the two women came forward, one black, one white, both to be baptized. And the black woman goes in, she gets baptized. And the white woman goes in and gets baptized. And since it was a Sunday, they gave them the Lord's Supper. And so they gave him a cup, apparently one cup, gives it to the black woman, she drinks. And then they give it to the white woman. And the white woman just looks in shock and disdain and just marches out. And he said here, yet when the cup containing the precious blood which had been shed for all came to her, she rose in disdain and walked out of the church. Such was the religion that she had experienced. And he said, to make any sense, she baptized in the same waters, right next to this other person, added to the same church, pledging allegiance to the same Savior. Like, how could this happen? And if you keep reading his book, he frequently refers to the fact that eating and lodging with people between races was a source of constant controversy. And what's really weird is that preacher that Douglas reports in that story had the gall to quote from Acts 10.34 and says, God is no respecter of persons. It didn't put it together. Now, I'm mentioning this because this story in some ways is somewhat similar to something we're going to see in Acts chapter 2. Because you have Peter withdrawing himself from the Gentiles. And it sends a message, right? A message that was, Paul had no patience for. And what's weird is that Acts, that story of Acts chapter 10 actually included Peter as well. Right? That was when Peter was told to go preach to the Gentiles. And like Peter, that preacher played the role of the hypocrite. But I think that preacher, there's some evidence in that preacher actually knew the right thing. He just played, he played the wrong role. I bring this up too because we're going to talk about the law and the way that the law works out in our own lives or, or doesn't, how the gospel is different than that. But there's also this nationalistic angle that you need to see throughout the book of Galatians. It also shows up in Romans. Okay, so part of the thing about going back to the law is it's going back to those prohibitions of Jew and Gentile relationships and bringing all that back in. It brings a whole bunch of stuff in, and this is one of the things that it brings back to. All right, any questions or comments on that? All right, so let's go ahead and read... Galatians chapter 2. We're going to do verses 1 through 10. Then after 14 years, I went up to Jerusalem again with Barnabas, taking Titus along too. I went there because of a revelation and presented to them the gospel that I preached among the Gentiles. But I did so only in a private meeting with the influential people to make sure that I was not running or had not run in vain. Yet not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised, although he was a Greek. Now this matter arose because of the false brethren with false pretenses who slipped in unnoticed to spy on our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus to make us slaves. But we did not surrender to them even for a moment in order that the truth of the gospel would remain with you. But from those who were influential, whatever they are makes no, sense to, no difference to me. God shows no favoritism between people. 
Those influential leaders added nothing to my message. On the contrary, when they saw that I was entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter was to the circumcised, for he who empowered Peter for his apostleship to the circumcised also empowered me for my apostleship to the Gentiles. And when James, Cephas, and John, who had a reputation as pillars, recognized the grace that had been given to me, they gave to Barnabas and me the right hand of fellowship, agreeing that we would go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. They requested only that we remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. All right, anything in there that you see is noteworthy or have a question about? Yes, sir. Yes. <laughs> in a word, yes. I think it is. It's this going back to the law and going back to this nationalistic sense where we have to divide. Uh, and actually, so I'm glad you bring this. That's a good transition. There we go. I have heard, so I've read many books on doubting, intellectual doubt, where people question whether, is this, this is gospel thing true? And I, I tell you, I cringe a lot in them because they'll point out examples where in the New Testament people doubted, which is not untrue. That, that's definitely true. They're examples. And then they'll point out Paul. And I'm like, yeah, I don't think, in, in Galatians, he said, I don't think that's what's going on here. And Ryan Davis you brought this up because it does seem, if you take that view, it seems it undermines what Paul had just said, which was that I get my authority straight from Christ. You, like, you should not question this, even if an angel tells you something else. And then Paul's like, well, but I doubted too. And that doesn't make any sense. Something else has to be going on. So the question has to be, what was Paul doubting, right? What was, he says is running in vain. I'm checking to make sure I'm not running in vain. Let me give you two options. So one is that he's doubting himself. This is what a lot of these books on doubting will, will mention. And this is a view I don't hold. And so that view would be, you know, I don't know if I have this gospel thing right. Let me go check in with James and the other apostles. That'd be, that'd be option one. Here's option two, which is that Paul is sitting here trying to make a Jew-Gentile church that includes across the lines. And he's out there working, and he starts to see that, well, it, do, the, do the apostles back home, do the 12, do they undermine me? Are they undermining me? Because, and you can see this actually throughout the, the book here. Where he's, you can see where he's getting these hints that maybe that's the case. And find out it's not the case, actually. Well, mostly not the case. So that would be option two, that he's actually not doubting himself. He's doubting that they may be supporting his mission. So let me just, we're going to go through the chunks of Galatians and then see which one matches better. So first of all, he opens that letter, even if an angel tells you something different or I tell you something different. So that's a pretty strong statement. I don't think that fits with him if he's doubted this himself, because he tells you, you should never doubt this. But then it would be kind of contradictory if he'd said, well, I mean, I doubted it at one point, I had to check in. Well, that doesn't really seem to fit. So I don't think that makes sense. He then, he talks about how he got his authority from Christ. Now, this one I think is so strong that you can almost just stop here and reject the, the thing that he had been doubting himself whether he got it right. Because he got it from Christ. And he says, I didn't need to check in with any such men. Well, then, why did you check in with men? If you're doubting yourself, 
Well, why would you check in with him? You just made the point. You got it from the CEO. You don't need to check in with some low-level intern after the CEO told you something. So I don't think it makes sense. But if he was doubting whether the apostles support it, that's a different story. Then he confirms with James. Well, okay, I guess you could say either way this would make sense. If you took the thing he was doubting himself, it would make sense he would go talk with James, I guess. It doesn't fit with the rest of it, but I do think it fits with this point. Then he starts making these points about how well, and James did not circumcise. Well, why would circumcision have anything to do with this? Unless he's doubting that they're pushing, or he's doubting that they're holding a hard line against circumcision because that would be softening the line between Jew and Gentile. And then he gives him the right hand of fellowship. I mean, either way, I guess that would, that would fit either scenario. But if you see this, it, I think that it really fits the scenario so much better if he's doubting the apostle's support to make a single church of both Jew and Gentile with no lines, no distinguishing between them. And so that's, that's what I think is going on here. So there are other passages about people who have doubted. I, this is, I just don't, like intellectual doubt. I don't think this is one of them. What do y'all think about that? Yes, sir. Exactly. He makes reference to those from James. So now you can see what's going on here. This fits so much better. Yeah, that's what, you can almost put that one on here. That little detail fits much better. This is why Paul is afraid that they may be undermining him because people are maybe arguing that, well, James actually agrees with us. And he's like, what? Well, I got to go talk to this guy, okay? This is Paul not making friends again. But he's like, okay, now you can see why he had a concern about this. And then there's this whole thing with Peter withdrawing himself and say, ugh. So yeah, exactly. And if you read Acts, there's a detail in Acts 15 that fits with this, which was, remember, they have James write the letter. And James in there says, we did not send these people out. We didn't send these guys. So he's, he's making it clear, we didn't send them. Why does he say that? Maybe because they're claiming that they had come from James and had his support. Yes, ma'am. Yeah, that's, that's a good way. So we would, in modern English, if Paul was writing this today, he would say it was like brushing his teeth with Oreo, while eating Oreos. That would, that's a, you could put that in a new translation if you want to do that. <laughs> or, or cleaning the house with kids in it. That is, yeah, that's true too. <laughs> All right, anything else? Oh, yes. Clarification. Uh, we got James doesn't circumcise. I assume that you mean James is not required to circumcision of Gentiles. Right. Correct. Exactly. Yeah, that, and that's a, that's a good point. I was trying to make the, the table smaller, but yes, he's not putting circumcision on Gentiles. Right. The Gentiles don't have, because that's effectively, we're going to talk about circumcision in a little bit, but the, effectively that makes them into Jews. That's how they understood that. All right. Anything else? Okay, so, oh, and then Peter hypocritically withdrawing. I forgot, I had another row. Yeah, that, that fits why he was concerned about this. And it fits with your point about those from James. So let's talk about Paul's missions. This is page 35 in the book. Paul gives several descriptions of his mission. What is 
What were some things you notice about his mission that he says about it? How he describes it, what he says it is, etc. Yes, sir. Okay, being assigned to the Gentiles. That, that's one frequent theme that comes up. Yes, ma'am. Yeah, preserving the truth of the gospel. And that's key because that means that there's something about circumcision and bringing in the Gentiles that is the gospel. It's actually that close to it, but softening that line is violating the gospel. Yes, sir. Right, on the flip side, yeah, he was not assigned to the Jews. Yeah, he went to the Jews in those areas where they were, but that was not principally the, the, his primary target, it seems like. Yes, ma'am? Remembering the poor. Okay, <laughs> remembering the poor. We're going to come back to that. This is something Chris brought up. Anything else? Yes, ma'am? Yeah, serving Christ. All of this is wind up. Yeah, <laughs> really, that's a key aspect, too, because I think there's so many issues where they may not seem like a big issue in a certain sense, but there's something underneath that where I see people softening on something. So, you know, that particular issue that you're softening on is what bothers me. What worries me is your fidelity to Christ, right? And that's actually the key aspect. Okay, so let's talk about this whole thing of helping the poor. Because Chris brought this up. That seems a little out of place in a certain sense, right? It's just like all this stuff's going on and, and then the one thing, remember to keep the poor. You remember the poor. You're like, wait, what? <laughs> How does that fit in there? Why is that in there, do you think? Yes, sir. Okay, so this isn't the first time he's mentioned, and specifically to a particular situation, which was a famine. Yes, I think it is related to it. And I think the relationship is that if you take what's called the South Galatian theory, then that would put this, that would mean that they had likely contributed to it. What else? Yes, ma'am. Yes, and this is, I think this is a good one because if you go, remember Ryan Lee asked the question about how, we're going to talk about this a little bit later again, but what are the artifacts that we as Christians are supposed to leave behind? Because, and he went on to talk about how theology is supposed to affect something physical. And it's easy in a certain sense with Jews where you can dig up these sites and you can find out there's just not a lot of pig bones there. There's a reason for that, right? Well, what do we leave behind? And this is a hint, I think, of what kind of things we're supposed to leave behind. Bob? You uh, 
culturally speaking, were the Gentiles as much involved in helping out the poor as the Jews were supposed to be? Okay. So the question is, were the Gentiles or the pagans known for helping the poor as much as Christians? The answer is no. And we know this because there's a book that by Rodney Stark called The Rise of Christianity. And he talks about the history and how Christianity grew. And he talks about, for example, the, boy, this is, this is appropriate to this situation. He talks about a pandemic that hit in 165 AD. And in 165 AD, he notes a couple things. He said, it's weird because Christians had a higher survival rate than pagans did. He's like, well, how is this? And he starts looking through the references. And what happened was that Christians stuck around and helped each other out. And so he's like, well, how did, I mean, it's not like they were 165. It's not like they had vaccines. Like, what were they doing? Or ventilators. And so he goes to some experts and said, well, does this make any sense? I said, oh, yeah, actually it does. He said, because if you can just give them food and water, you can increase the survival rate by a lot. And it occurred to me when I was reading this book, I'm like, that actually makes sense. I remember one time on a business trip, I got sick. And I had a stomach flu. Like, the, oh, I hate the stomach flu. But I woke up in the middle of the night, and my lips were hard as rock. And I was like, oh, no, 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 this is how, you, this is how the simple flu puts you in the emergency room. It was dehydration. So I literally crawled. This sounds so pathetic. I literally crawled to the bathroom to, to, to like, drink a bunch of water. That sort of thing can in- dramatically improve the survival rate. The Christians showed up. Here's the weird thing. This is why this goes to your question about whether the pagans were known for it. They didn't just do it for the Christians. They did it for the pagans. And we know this because the pagans mentioned it. There's this guy named Julian, and he was frustrated. He says, these pagans are my own side. He was saying, we don't have this idea of charity like the Christians do. He said, they, and this is him. This is a pagan. He says, they didn't just help each other. They helped our people. And he was trying to get his fellow pagans to go out and do the same thing. And he, he couldn't do it. It just didn't work. Because the one thing he didn't want was people being motivated by a man who was God who had given themselves for him. That's the one thing he didn't want. So he gutted the gospel in a certain sense, but wanted the same outcome. It didn't work. Okay? But, but this guy is a pagan, and he's saying we don't, we're not known for that. And, and it's weird. If you go back and read a lot of those writings, like the physician Galen, when everybody started getting sick, he just, he just went. He just left. That's what he did. Right? And now in like modern, I've heard people who said when they, they went to get their medical degree that they'll mention guys like Galen and they'll say, yeah, but this is one, do, do not do that. Okay, when there's a pandemic, you don't just run. When you're a doctor, that's not what you do. But that's what the pagans did. But the Christians didn't do that. Yes, sir. Yeah, and um, I feel like it may have been mentioned here. I can't remember where I heard it, but just the general philosophy between um, the Christian philosophy of uh, there is no class, there's everyone is uh, equally um, cherished in God's eyes versus the pagan idea, which was there were these gods and they showed favor to these people and they didn't show favor to these people. The poor were not people that we should reach down to. The poor were people who were a different class and you looked down on them because they were poor and you, you basically assumed that they were lesser people because they were poor. And if you had, if you had wealth, uh, the, the pagan, the Greek view of things was that, oh, you are a better person because of, of, of that, you know, your wealth, um, your talent. And they strictly saw those classes, and they didn't, there was no, just, just that philosophy, I'm not saying it very well. But 
No, you're, I mean, you're right. If you read, Larry Hurtado has this book called The Destroyer of the Gods. And The Destroyer of the Gods is Christianity and how it destroyed paganism. And he mentions that, how they, they didn't eliminate the class distinction. Also, the gender distinction. I mean, we know this in part because pagans would write mocking Christians. They teach their women, weirdos, right? This is, they thought this was bizarre. And, and even racial distinction. In Rome, if the issue with Jesus was not that they, they didn't mind adding a new god to their pantheon. The problem was that when people who followed Jesus said, no, he's the only one. Everybody else is out. That was where they crossed the line. And I'm mentioning this because they believe this idea of tribal gods. So when Rome kept taking over these new areas, they just added all the gods and all the people into this new pantheon. So when you, if you and I were different, different nations, we had our, I had my god, you had your god. But in Christianity, that's not the case. Wait, it's all, it's supposed to be one church under one God. And that, so that, that winds up bringing everybody together. Uh, nine, nine, I see that? Going along with Brad, he also subtly mentions multiple times that he, the influential doesn't mean anything to him. Right. So right. he is bringing them down to the same level as everybody else. He says, I want to talk to the influential, but it doesn't mean anything to me. So he's putting them all on that playing field right. in Christianity. Yeah, good point. We're like, God is no respecter of persons. And more, this is kind of Paul's mentioning that again by saying they, they appear to be influential. And he says they are pillars. And I don't think he's meaning to put that. I think he is saying, in a certain sense, they're pillars. But the same point, to your point, they're all on the same level under Christ. Uh, did I see another hand raised? Mitch? Yeah, that's fine. Okay, so where is, you said worked? Verse 8. In verse 8. For he who effectively worked for Peter and his apostleship to the circumcised effectively worked for me also. Okay, NET translates that empowered. Yeah, so on the parentheses, Greek does not have parentheses. So I think all the translators are doing here is just saying it seems like an aside Greek also has really, really long sentences, like really, really long sentences, which is really awkward if you try to translate that in English, because the English that's considered not as good English. So I think the parentheses, I think what a translator would tell you is just, it's a really, really long sentence. This seems like a parenthetical in the sense that it, it kind of pulls away from the main point and then he returns to the same point. I, that's, I'm guessing that's all what's going on there. I'm just looking at it. Let's see if it... Yeah, I, that's as best as I could do. I'd have to look into that one further. Uh, yeah, okay, so worked. So mine has empowered. What is, does anybody else have something other than worked or empowered? Just that word. The NIV says, God who was at work in Peter as an apostle, as an apostle to the circumcised was also at work in me as an apostle to the Gentiles. Okay. So just saying, yeah, empowered, God gave us the work. Okay, and that's kind of how I read this. It was just they were saying we have different parts of the mission, but they're different parts of the same mission. 
and that he was working in both of us, not one or the other. That, I don't know if I'm underanalyzing it or that's just how I read it. What are your thoughts on that? Is that? Do you think there's still an ambiguity or? I was just wondering if there was something specifically that he was referring to. Um, yeah. I don't know. I mean, what do you all think about that? Do you think there's something specific that he's pointing at? I mean, Peter, I guess you could almost say that, because back in Acts chapter 10, 11, and 15, when you see how this problem's worked out, Peter was the one who got the vision. So that one seems kind of, I would make sense if he's maybe referring to that, or I don't know if he's referring to that or something just in general. Uh, Nina, did I see your hand? Because he's dealing with both of the cultures. He's saying his apostolic was to the Jews, his Paul's to the Gentiles, but it all washes out the same. Because we got it, we just, he sent us to different people. But it's not, the Jews are better than the Gentiles, or the Gentiles are better than the Jews. We're all equal in God's sight. Yeah, and that's exactly how I've read it too. But, you know, to your point, Mitch, I guess I hadn't really thought about that because both Peter and Paul, it's not just that they have a mission. They did have a very specific calling, right? Peter, Peter's not just some guy who says, hey, I think this gospel thing, I've been analyzing it, and I think it's supposed to be for everybody. He actually had a vision, right? And Paul had an interaction with Jesus as well. So maybe, maybe that's why, maybe that's an aspect of it. Uh, Raymond and then... Yeah, and you know, it's interesting because I, when I looked at the Greek in, in verse 9, I thought that it, I just said it was a Greek sentence that's really, really long. But actually, there's a period right at the end of verse 8, which is kind of not humorous. They, did, they actually broke here. But granted, when you go into the original, they didn't actually have punctuation in the original. You had to add that, and it just gets a little complicated. Uh, David? Good point. It's, it's the same gospel, but we have different roles. And it would make sense that he's kind of parsing it out to say, okay, yes, we have different roles, but it is the same gospel, and it's the same mission. And that would be important because Paul seems like he just kind of comes out of nowhere. You know, I mean, if you think about it, oh, we had the 12, they, they traveled Jesus, and then there's this guy who was persecuting Christians, and all of a sudden he says he saw, wait, uh, he's like, born out of due season, he says. And so this would be, yeah, our missions are different, but just because they're different missions, different parts of the mission, doesn't mean they're not part of the same message, though. All right, anything else on that? So Chris Whitsett had also brought up the right hand of fellowship. Like, 
what is going on there. And on one hand, the phrase seems to be obvious, where he's saying James and I are on the same, on the same side, if you will. The, or the, the rest of the apostles in the Jerusalem church are on the same side. So I did I do a little bit of research on this. First of all, on the two things. Okay, one of them is the easier part, which is fellowship. And the harder part would be right hand. I mean, it, again, it, in a certain sense, it seems obvious, but what is going on there? So I looked up right hand to see if there's any other cases where that phrase is used in ancient Greek literature. And it's not used super commonly. I found one in Plato. And, but that's, there's a time difference between that and the New Testament. In Plato, it actually seems to be a sign of respect. In this case, so I don't know if it's supposed to be a sign of respect here too, or if it's just supposed to be like we're on the same side. Uh, it does seem to be more on the same side because of the word fellowship. Uh, the word fellowship, koinonia, if you, if you follow the word, it means more than just like a basic social interaction. It seems something deeper than that. Like we're actually on the same side. We're doing the same mission. We're connected. The, I looked it up in the TDNT, and it points out that like the word koinos, from where koinonia comes from, just means to hold things in common. Well, this would fit, right? We're holding these things in common. We're on the same mission. And so we're holding this mission in common in a certain sense. I also use it, First John uses it frequently. And again, it means more than just a basic social interaction because it talks about having a connection between believers. But by that, in that book, he means to love your brothers the way that Jesus loves them. It also connects it to the way we interact with Jesus. So uh, that's what I think is going on there. Any other thoughts on the right hand of fellowship? Yes, ma'am. Yeah, that's, that's a good point. Representing Christ is a key aspect throughout Galatians. It's like we both represent Christ. And that, that point is not even to focus on us, to focus on Christ is that point. That's the point. Yeah, good point. That's a good way to look at it. Yes, sir. Okay. Good point. Second Kings 10, 15, you said? Okay. I'll look that up. I'd be curious to see how the Septuagint translates that. If it actually uses the same word. It didn't, when I searched for it, it didn't hit. So it might be a different word. Or I just didn't see it. All right. Anything else on that? Yes, ma'am. Yeah, so the, in some cultures, like, left hand is dirty, so you offer them the right hand. I've also heard, and see, I, I wondered about this, too, because there's these cultural elements about how left and right, and I don't know how much to, goes back to this, but it would make sense, actually. That's probably where it came from. I've also heard that it was about, like, your weapon hand. You know, you had your, like, what, so if you have your right hand, if you're probably right-handed, if you were going to stab somebody, if you're going to go all stabby on them, you probably would, you know, give them the left hand, and then, then you jab them or something like that. So it's just showing you're not armed. Yeah. So, I, yeah, I, I wondered about that. I don't know how that works or how much of that culture aspect fits here. Yes, ma'am. I also read, I think one of the points that we don't want to overlook is the word fellowship. Right. Because it's the right hand of fellowship. And 
Exactly. The fellowship there is the, the partnership. And I read it's koinia in Greek. And it's also the same uh, root word path that the Greeks use for Samuel's twins. So hmm. it's like the fellowship of the, the same head, the same blood, the same heart. I mean, we just we function off of the exact same thing. And that head and heart is God. Interesting. So when you said Siamese twins, modern Greek or in ancient Greek today, do you happen to know if it was? Okay, I'm going to look that up actually. I'm curious to see if they still use it like that. That'd be, that'd be, that's, a, that's a good way to look. Like Siamese twins, right? We're part of the same body. Okay, We use the word body for the body of Christ. And you use the same blood system? Same blood system? We're connected. Yeah, that's, that's a good parallel. I like that. All right. Should we move on? Uh, let's see. Oh, I was going to mention, this is something that might be going on here that might explain, if you look into the history, some of the things that are going on here. So there's a, there seems to be a rising, and this is what other historians have said, there, a rising sense of Jewish nationalism that's growing during this time frame. And this makes a lot of sense. I think you can actually see this in the New Testament. You think about how you read John chapter 17 through the end of the book, and you're going to see that nationalistic edge show up there. Right? Jesus keeps saying, my kingdom is not of this world. It's a different type of kingdom. And the irony in that text is you have this rising Jewish nationalism, and in the end, the Jewish leaders wind up professing that Caesar is their king, which is this kind of ironic twist at the end. So I'm going to give you a little bit of history here. So we have Jesus' death. Galatians is written. So it's 50 to 56, pretty tight range between what people will say. Rome burns sometime later than that. And around the time of Paul's death. There's a revolution. The first revolt happens over here in about 68 AD. It results in Jerusalem being destroyed. Okay, the, the kind of irony here was that they were trying to assert their nationalistic identity, and it, it really caused their own destruction. Temple winds up getting destroyed. So that's the first revolt. Not too far after the times of the New Testament, when the Gospels were written. You have a second revolt called the Quitos War. Some people won't consider this the second one, so the, the next one will actually consider the second, depending on whether you include it. But you keep seeing this, the Jews assert their nationalistic identity. Jerusalem is eventually renamed by, by the Romans as Aelia Capitolina, that does not go over well. And you get the third revolt. And this one was massive. A guy by the name of Simon Bar Kokhba led this revolution in 132 to 135 AD. And it was, it was massive. He had a lot more support, broad-based support from the Jews than he did than the Jews had in the first revolt, in which they were literally fighting amongst themselves inside the city while the Romans were outside. In this case, they were more on the same side. And it took three years for the Romans to finally put this one down. So you see this history of this, like we want to hold on to our nationalistic identity. And if you think about it, that might make sense here too, is you have some, some Jewish Christians who still want to hold on to circumcision because it keeps our, our Jewish identity. And Paul is saying, hold on, you know, your identity is in Christ. It says that in chapter 2, your identity is in Christ. It is not in your nationalistic identity. He's trying to force them to separate those two things. Questions or comments on that? Yes, sir.
Yeah, I mean, I know when I was reading this, because I've read a bunch of white papers on so-called Christian nationalism. And yeah, I think it is a growing problem among some groups. What's weird, though, and I'll, I'll repeat this, because this was, this was something, in, the studies are very consistent in this, is that Christian nationalism is the strongest in people who don't actually show up at church, the unchurched, which kind of fits, right? And what there was, one scholar said, I remember there's one in particular, he said, what happens here is that they keep the symbols of Christianity, but they eject the substance of it. Which makes sense, because you see some of these people, and you're like, dude, why are you so angry all the time? You know, and then you realize, oh, okay, something else is going on here. Yeah, so I mean, it, but it still is a warning. And I think it's also what you see in the end of the Gospels. These are people who are, you know, we're so Jewish, we kill our Jewish Messiah? Okay, <laughs> something's gone wrong here. It's like it's used as a I think that's a good way to put it. It's, it's like religion becomes a hood ornament for them. It's a tool to be used for some purpose, as opposed to the actual important thing itself. <laughs> yeah, good point. All right. We are running light on time. Is that the rain again? See, I've been told that when that happens, none of you can hear me. See, so, well, some of you can hear me. Okay, so... Okay, uh, let's go on to the next section. I'm going to read Galatians 2, 11 through 14, and you can read this yourself while the rain passes, hopefully. Verse 11. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he had clearly done wrong. Until certain people came from James, he had been eating with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he stopped doing this and separated himself, because he was afraid of those who were pro-circumcision. And the rest of the Jews also joined with him in hypocrisy, so that even Barnabas was led astray with them by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were not behaving consistently with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in front of all of them, If although you are a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you try to force the Gentiles to live like Jews? All right. What did you notice, if you can still hear me? Or any, anything that was noteworthy, questions about that part? Yes, sir. Yeah, the actions of one person, think about how much that affected. Oh, I think Ryan boosted me. The, uh, yeah, the actions of one person. Think about how much of an effect that had. So, you know, let's, let's talk about that. Put yourself in the Gentile's position. You're sitting there with Peter. You're sitting here with a bunch of these Christians. 
Christians, including Barnabas, and all of a sudden those of the circumcision show up and they withdraw themselves from you, what would you be thinking, what would you be feeling, and what kind of questions would you have if you were in that situation? Yes, sir. Yeah, isolated. I mean, think, think about that. that. That's a good way to put it. Isolated. Like, you know, it's almost worse. It's not like you, if he wasn't eating with them, and then he wasn't eating with them, that's one thing. But he actually withdrew, actively withdrew himself. It's like, I thought we were friends, like you said. And then this happened. David. Yeah, rejected, right? Especially for somebody like Peter. Yes, Bob. Well, I would be less confident in what they were teaching. Less confident in what they were teaching. Ah, uh, this is yes. And you know, we talk about James. And James talks about using the tongue in an effective way. If you go back and read that text in James chapter three, verse one, he starts saying, "Not many should be teachers because what they say." That seems to be the implication. What a teacher says, what somebody in that position, it actually lands worse. Like if, if a teacher makes a mistake or somebody like Peter makes a mistake, it sends a different message than if it's just some random person. He says even Barnabas was led astray. Now you're. Yeah, and the thing about the food laws is many of the rabbis would, in the Talmud, would say that the food laws were intended to separate Jews and Gentiles, right? And so, and if you think about this, I think Acts actually testifies that 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 viewpoint is correct because in Acts chapter 10, do you remember the vision that Peter gets? It's about food and the food laws, okay? But Peter knows that the actual message there is not that I can finally eat a pulled pork sandwich, but it has something to do with the Gentiles. Uh, Caitlin? Yeah, you'd feel like a lesser Christian, and then, then, then that little question comes in the back, do I have to do more? Or this is why I think Paul was so concerned about the, the message of the sent, because he did seem to send that. Yes, ma'am.
Good point. Yeah, what, what was your motive? It kind of questions, well, why did, you, why did you come to us, you know, the Gentiles? I mean, did you come? I, I'm not, I'm not probably thinking like this, but when you want this gift sent to Jerusalem, was that for the right reasons? You know, what is going on here? Is this just one, you want to check a box to say, here's the number of Gentiles I've gotten out of, I, what? and I think that's a point because Paul questions the motives of the other side of this. That's true. Yeah, we have to be careful of the same thing. And we are going to talk about how we avoid falling into the same traps because it, we can do the same thing. Raymond. In verse 12, it says, Peter conservative party. It's the influence of the Jewish people that they have over the Yeah. To correct it in public, right? That's what I'm right. It was done in public, it's corrected in public, and go about it. And it serves as weird. Someone's mistake serves as a great um, lesson. Yeah, yeah, and exactly. I think that's a good, it does. And we're going to end with Ryan Lee. Well, I was just going to say, so that it, we had talked about taking care of the poor being part of the spirit or the culture of the church. It seems as if we've got step number two as well as some sort of eating together. Yeah, I agree, especially with what that actually means. It's not just the consumptions of proteins in the relative vicinity of one another, right? There's a whole message there about this real togetherness that we have. Good point. All right, thank you all.